Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Matthew C. Ehrlich, the author of Dangerous Ideas on Campus, Sex, Conspiracy, and Academic Freedom in the Age of JFK. Dangerous Ideas explores a unique moment in the history of American higher education. In 1960, University of Illinois professor Leo Cook wrote a public letter condoning premarital sex. He was fired. Four years later, a professor named Revelo Oliver made white supremacist remarks and claimed there was a massive communist conspiracy. He kept his job. Matthew Ehrlich revisits the Cook and Oliver cases to look at free speech, the legacy of the 1960s, and debates over sex and politics on campus. The different treatment of the two men marked a fundamental shift in the understanding of academic freedom. Their cases also embodied the stark divide over beliefs and values, a divide that remains today. Ehrlich delves into the issues behind these academic controversies and places the events in the context of a time rarely associated with dissent, but in fact, a harbinger of the social and political upheavals to come. An enlightening and entertaining history, Dangerous Ideas on Campus, illuminates how the university became a battleground for debating America's hot button issues. Matthew C. Ehrlich is a professor emeritus of journalism at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. His books include Kansas City versus Oakland, The Bitter Sports Rivalry That Defined an Era, and Radio Utopia, post-war audio documentary in the public interest, winner of the James W. Tankard Book Award. Matthew Ehrlich, welcome to the New Books Network. First, let me congratulate you on this book. It's a really exciting uh, exploration of a particularly interesting moment in higher education, and it's filled with characters who defy easy categorization. Before we delve into the specifics, can you tell me a little bit about what brought you to this project? Well, I came to it uh, in a roundabout way in that um, I, for better or worse, have always been around college campuses pretty much all my life. Uh, My parents were college teachers. Um, I um, worked at university-based public radio stations after majoring in journalism in college. And um, so I've always had an interest in how journalism and higher education intersect. And Tom, I'm really sorry. I have to uh, break here for just a moment. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, I'll be right back ahead and start with so um, I have sorry I keep hearing recording in progress on top of everything else so I'm just going to keep talking from here sorry so I've been around college campuses pretty much all my life for better or for worse Uh, my parents were college teachers Um, I majored in journalism in college and when I graduated I uh, worked at several university-based public radio stations and so I've always had an interest in how journalism and higher education intersect. And I worked as a journalism professor for 25 years after earning my journalism degree. And in researching the history of this, I uh, became aware that uh, sex was a particularly controversial issue in the early 1960s. It was being written about all over the place. Everyone from Margaret Mead to Gloria Steinem were writing about it in the press. And um, so that is what brought me to the attention of the case of Leo Cook. He was a biology professor at the University of Illinois, who in 1960 wrote a letter to the editor of the student newspaper, 
basically saying premarital sex among college students, undergraduates was no big deal. In fact, it should be condoned. It would lead to longer lasting marriages and that got him fired. So I thought that was an interesting case and it happened to have occurred at the place where I spent most of my academic career. So I started researching that and that in turn uh, alerted me to the case of Revelo Oliver, who also was a professor at the University of Illinois and was kind of diametrically opposite of Leo Cook in terms of his politics and his beliefs. Leo Cook was left liberal and uh, Revelo Oliver was hard right, eventually extreme right. And when Revelo Oliver in 1964, four years after the Leo Cook case, uh, wrote an article saying that John F. Kennedy, who had just been assassinated, was a loathsome traitor to America. And it was a good thing that he was killed, basically. That also created a big stir at the University of Illinois. But this time, the university decided not to act. So basically, in a roundabout way, I came to um, focus on just these two cases as kind of a case study in how issues in higher education reflect broader tensions in American culture and American politics at specific historical moments and how those episodes um, still resonate today. Yeah, so, so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, the contemporary university is so accustomed to thinking of itself as being in a state of crisis that the word crisis has almost been emptied of meaning. Um, your book directs us to a time that was similarly fraught, though in some sense very different ways. Let's start the set, but let's start the discussion by setting the stage and, and tell me a little bit about the University of Illinois in the 1960s. Well, it was a kind of traditionally conservative Midwestern campus, big Midwestern public university. Um, you know, there wasn't. This is the age of the so-called silent generation, and I'm always careful to put that in quotes and say so-called, because um, anytime you make sweeping generalizations about any generation, including the boomers, generation X or whatever, um, it's always going to be um, something that uh, basically really leaves out a lot of um, nuance. So the silent generation wasn't necessarily that silent, but it was, um, if you were to use broad um, generalizations about it, fairly conservative, fairly um, hardworking, kind of um, nose to the grindstone kind of attitude. Um, so there weren't, wasn't a whole lot of overt uh, political activity on campus at that time at the University of Illinois. Uh, the campus was 70% male at that time, only 30% female. Um, there, the university boasted very proudly that it was the fraternity capital of America. So, um, you know, student life was very uh, kind of routine, very ritualized, and um, very staid, I guess would be the way to put it. But there's a lot of undercurrents that are kind of bubbling around the, the surface of that state exterior. Um, one of the big issues that confronted the University of Illinois was a budget crunch. Uh, that's something that we're used to talking about today. But this was a very kind, this was really kind of a different uh, set of problems that the budget crunch was producing there. Yeah. Um... 
it's important again to keep in mind the historical context of this particular moment. So the baby boom was already very much underway. Um, and um, it hadn't quite reached, we're talking 1960, and the baby boom is, is typically thought to begin, have begun right around 1946. So it hadn't quite broken over higher education yet, but everyone could see what was coming because the first baby boomers had already moved through elementary school, were now moving through secondary school, Cities all over the country were having to build uh, more and more K through 12 schools. And it was very clear that these kids were coming toward um, universities across the country. And the typical term that was used at that time to describe what was oncoming was the tidal wave uh, with all the connotations of, of potential disaster that, uh, that carried with it if the universities weren't prepared to handle this. So just like universities across the country, public universities, the uh, U of I, I'm going to use that as the shorthand to describe the University of Illinois. The U of I knew that it needed more public funding to construct more buildings, to hire more staff and more faculty, all to handle the baby boomers who would be arriving on campus very shortly. Um, so the means that uh, was determined to get that uh, extra funding was a bond issue. And uh, there had been one bond issue on the ballot in 1958 that had failed. So they decided to put a second bond issue by they, I'm talking about uh, the governor of the state at that time, the legislature and uh, higher education in the state of Illinois decided to put a second bond issue on the ballot in 1960. So um, it was absolutely critical that that bond issue pass. If it did not pass, the, the whole University of Illinois system was simply not going to be prepared to cope with this um, tidal wave of students that was coming. And really, it, it, it's interesting to think about the the tidal wave of students when we're living through um, what what we regard we we call the demographic cliff, um, where the opposite has occurred, where the the capacity that we built just a few years ago uh, and now is seeing dramatic decreases in enrollment. Um, so let's let's also talk about one of the this is an important theme that that pops up. Um, is the leadership of the university that's that's trying to pitch this bond issue, um, and is is sorely concerned with the with the tidal wave that's coming through, um, but also facing uh, the prospects of the McCarthyist Red Scare. So tell us a little bit about David Dodds Henry. Uh, David Dodds Henry um, was uh, raised with a fundamentalist uh, religious upbringing. Um, uh, in a former farmhouse in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, he got his degrees from Penn State. Um, he rose through the higher education academic ladder pretty quickly. He had been president of Wayne State University in New York and then moved on to an executive right. position at New York University, uh, at, at Wayne State University in Detroit, rather, and then uh, at New York University. And uh, he um, uh, came to the University of Illinois following a period of intense controversy at the U of I. The previous president, George Stoddard, 
who was a fairly well-known uh, liberal educator, had been very active in UNESCO and so forth, had been ousted by the University Board of Trustees. And there were a whole set of factors behind that, but McCarthyism had uh, certainly been one of the reasons for Stoddard's ouster. Stoddard had been ousted in 1953. Henry, after a brief um, dust up over purported red ties of his own. He also had been red baited at Wayne State and then later uh, when his name was first floated for the University of Illinois presidency, came to the U of I in 1955. So he arrived right after Joseph McCarthy himself had been censured and um, the worst of the McCarthyism on college campuses was slowly starting to ebb but there certainly was still a hangover from it. And so um, five years into his presidency, um, uh, Henry had been able to accomplish a good deal as U of I president. He was able to take advantage of the fact that the board of trustees at Illinois that had ousted the previous president really wanted Henry's presidency to go well, didn't want more embarrassment to come to them and also to the university. So he was able to play that to his political advantage and to um, work toward getting a lot of change, um, constructive change, I think is um, fair to say, uh, happen at the U of I. But there was still concerns about purported uh, communist influences on campus, about purported liberalism being equated with socialism and being equated with um, leftist influence, again, as uh, it seems to be a perennial in public higher education. So when Leo Cook wrote his letter in 1960, it actually did trigger uh, a violent response from a minister in the city of Chicago, who was a one-time communist turned conservative minister. And he was convinced that Leo Cook actually was uh, at the vanguard of a new wave of communist influence on campus. So this is um, something that kind of uh, clashed with David Henry's uh, plans for uh, building up the University of Illinois. And it also posed a potential threat to the bond issue that Henry and the university had committed themselves fully to. And before we get into the specifics of Leo Cook and the controversy over his letter in the school paper, um, let's let's also talk about, and this is something that, you know, when I talk to my students about it, they're absolutely sort of flabbergasted at the idea of in loco parentis, um, which seemed to be the, the dominant way of thinking about the relationship between the university and his students in the 1960s. Yeah, in loco parentis basically means in the place of, of, of the parent. And higher education had kind of assumed for itself that role across the board. It was at college campuses across the country. And it was a whole elaborate set of, of rules that um, constantly were shifting, constantly changing in a very arbitrary sort of way. But the best description of in loco parentis that I have found is that it really kind of amounted to a single word. And that single word was don't, <laughs> don't do this, don't do that. Um, and the biggest don't was don't go all the way, basically. Right. So there were curfew hours, uh, especially targeted at young women, there was very much a double standard 
uh, built in within Loco Parentis. Um, and in fact, and, and in fact two, if, as I recall, two deans that, that oversaw uh, women and men, correct? Yeah, there was a whole system of deans. There was a dean of students, and then there was a dean of men and a dean of women at the University of Illinois and elsewhere. And um, the dean of women, who um, was a woman named Miriam Sheldon at the University of Illinois, was quite progressive in many ways. She was actually in that position from right after World War II um, through almost the end of the 1960s. But um, regardless of her progressive views on a whole host of subjects, she was very much committed to in loco parentis and was on record as saying, you know, the university has part of, of, as part of its educational responsibility, the responsibility of teaching ethics. And part of ethics is ethical um, social behavior and ethical sexual behavior as defined in very traditional sorts of ways. So um, the student body, you know, we, we started off by talking about how the atmosphere on campus as of 1960 at Illinois and many other campuses was fairly staid, fairly quiet, fairly conservative. Um, in loco parentis was a big part of that. And it, it did serve to kind of keep a lid on uh, the most um, um, overt signs of protest, most overt signs of rebellion on college campuses. Yeah, and you do a, a really fascinating job of, of describing the fraternity culture on campus and especially uh, how they managed um, their romantic entanglement, I guess, if you will. Uh, the, the entire system of pinning and, and uh, the various other levels of relationship, I guess, that, that we now we've sort of foisted off onto Facebook, but um, <laughs> they had their own system for, for describing it. Yeah, and this was reflected in the student newspaper. There was basically a progression, and I don't remember each step of the progression. Basically, it was kind of like you, you met someone, you started to go steady, uh, eventually you got pinned, and then it moved on to being engaged, and then it went on to being married. And along with um, in loco parentis seeming very foreign and exotic, to today's young people, actually beyond today's young people, to people who just did not grow up in that era, it just seems kind of bizarre. Um, you know, and then another thing that went along with that that uh, has changed fairly dramatically was just how young people were marrying at. Um, you know, young women were marrying at an approximate average age of 20. So, you know, one anecdote that I turned up in my research was that uh, there was an annual spring festival that would happen, um, you know, right about the end of March, early April on, at the University of Illinois. And uh, the members of one sorority on campus uh, announced that it would be unable to participate in that spring festival because too many members of the house had moved out to get married. <laughs> so, you know, you were talking 20, 21 year olds. Sure. And um, part of the reason young people were getting married so early was um, that was, frankly, the best way to enter into um, socially condoned uh, sexual relations, 
which were not condoned outside marriage. Now, of course, young people were having sex outside marriage, but there was a substantial uh, social stigma attached to it. Again, uh, partly as an outgrowth of in loco parentis, but also just as an outgrowth of typical uh, sexual mores and social mores of that era. Yeah, I mean, you even described the, the campus police sort of doing tours of local hotels in the Champaign area looking for uh, student parking passes. Yeah, and if they saw the bumper stickers on, on uh, the, the uh, cars uh, parked at these campus motels, you know, they would start knocking on doors. And, um, you know, another anecdote that I've read, this was as late as 1964, were that a male-female couple who I think were the equivalent of pinned or engaged. They were in a committed relationship and they were sitting in a car parked off campus and uh, kissing. And that apparently is all that they were doing. They were just kissing in a parked car off campus. The campus police uh, interrupted them, took the young woman away in a police car, and she was placed on something called informal conduct probation. And her reaction was, this makes me feel cheap and ashamed. And no, no wonder. (laughs) Whereas the young man wasn't disciplined at all. So this is just, this is really what starts to plant the seeds of dissent on campus. When we think of uh, the 1960s in in higher education on on United States uh, college campuses, you know, we think of this sort of springing out of the free speech movement at Berkeley in 1964 and then escalating with the military escalation in Vietnam and really exploding by the end of the 1960s. But the seeds of this were being planted a few years earlier, and they came out of uh, multiple things happening in um, society at that time, uh, civil rights being a prime example of it. But it also was just in reaction to the system of in local parentis and just into the system of rules. It wasn't so much, gee, we want sexual freedom and we're going to get it by any means necessary. It was just like, why are all these silly rules in place? Why are they so arbitrary? Yeah. Why did the curfew hours keep shifting weekend by weekend? And that's really when students start questioning well, why are things the way they are? And why is just this one word don't so prevalent in our, in our uh, rule system? So yeah, this, so this sets the stage for uh, Leo Cook. And so let's talk a little bit about, about Leo Cook. And um, you've, already, you've already mentioned it, but let's maybe delve into some detail about uh, what he did to get himself fired. Well, Leo Cook is your classic gadfly. Uh, college campuses have, all college campuses have them. Probably uh, most occupations, most professions, most workplaces have them. And this is a guy who, um, um, when you read his memoir, he had an unpublished memoir uh, that he wrote in 1963 because he decided he wanted to take LSD as of 1963. And he was outlining his rationale for for wanting to do that. And he observed that pretty much his entire adult life, he had always been having clashes with authority. He had served in World War II. He clashed with his um, commanding officer. 
Um, he got a doctorate from University of Michigan in 1950, um, took a, a temporary teaching position at uh, Bakersfield College in California, clashed with his department heads, got another temporary teaching position at Tulane University in New Orleans, clashed with his department heads. And despite all that, he still was able to land a position at the University of Illinois in 1955 and immediately started clashing with his department heads. Um, so the result was that the university had decided to put him on, um, on a terminal contract that was set to expire in 1961. So when he received that terminal contract, they basically, the university had told him, okay, you can, you can teach till the end of your contract, but then you're going to need to look for a new position. He basically seemed to decide to himself, well, I've got nothing else to lose. So I've already been writing a whole bunch of controversial letters to the editor, basically attacking organized religion. So um, I'm just going to step that up. In Leo, Cook, in, in, yeah, Leo Cook, in addition to being uh, a gadfly, um, also was uh, a biologist and a dedicated secular humanist who was very, very skeptical, if not downright hostile to organized religion and Christianity. And he would write letters to the editor basically saying like, there are all these uh, pro-Christianity programs on the local TV stations. Why aren't there uh, programs um, talking about secular humanism? Um, if God were all powerful, why did he design humanity to have markedly inferior uh, senses of smell and hearing and of sight, markedly inferior to that of other creatures? So he already was really rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. And that was really the context of his letter to the editor uh, that would get him fired prematurely before the end of his contract at the University of Illinois. And really, in contemporary terms, there's nothing terribly controversial about what Leo Cook was advocating in that letter. No, um, as, as I mentioned at the outset, basically what he said in the letter he was reacting to a column that a couple of undergraduate male students had written in the Daily Illini, the, the, the um, campus student newspaper. And the two students had written a column uh, critiquing this ritualized, very restrained, constrained um, campus dating culture that was an outgrowth again of in local parentis. The students said, uh, you know, the, the campus dating culture is, is basically reduced to um, couples making out in sorority lounges until the 1 a.m. curfew, and they have to keep doing it till 1 a.m. because no one can go home early because it would be a big social faux pas. And this is just silly. Why, why do we do this? Again, people are starting to question why things are the way they are. But it was a very mild column. And Leo Cook read this and he said, well, these students who wrote this column missed the entire point. The real point is that we had this, what he called outdated, outmoded Christian morality that uh, is very inhumane and uh, deprives students of normal sexual outlook, outlets. And he said, Look, contraceptives are now readily available. The oral contraceptive pill had been introduced as of 1960. Um, and of course, there were other forms of contraception that were available. 
Um, students have many forms of uh, medical advice they can turn to. And so there really is no reason why you can't have a mutually satisfactory sexual relationship between two mature individuals, he's careful to use the word mature, uh, without, you know, the fear of social stigma. And this would, in fact, lead to longer lasting marriages. So he's not only saying mature, um, committed individuals, he's also saying this would uh, be better for the, the institution of marriage. So he's not really advocating free love. He's not advocating uh, casual sex or so-called hooking up. So yeah, by today's standards, it's a very, very mild letter. But by the standards of 1960, it was not mild at all. And so his termination date got sped up. Yes, quite dramatically. Um, a couple of members of the Board of Trustees wrote to David Henry, the university president, saying, look, this is outlandish. This guy should be relieved of his duties. His uh, unit heads who already were irritated uh, with him, um, decided, look, there's no reason to keep him um, on uh, campus beyond this year. They put him on the equivalent of administrative leave, uh, immediately relieved him of his teaching duties mid-semester. And um, basically, I think their expectation and certainly their hope was that that would um, end things because People had written letters complaining to the university. Um, I mentioned uh, this minister up in Chicago. He had organized uh, a letter writing campaign uh, demanding that this professor get fired, although that was not directly responsible for him getting fired. So uh, it would have seemed that, that that would be the end of the matter. But something unexpected, I think, to the university leadership happened. The students really got angry. They called a mass demonstration on campus that happened right after the firing. Um, more than a thousand people turned up. They were uh, parading around with placards saying like, not free love, but free speech. Because for them, even if they did not agree with Leo Cook's uh, viewpoints on sex, they certainly thought he at least had the right to express them. There were protests at Berkeley four years before the free speech movement emerged there. Protests at University of Michigan, University of Iowa, and elsewhere. The Harvard Crimson and other student newspapers um, sharply um, criticized the U of I for its actions. Um, academics overseas protested. And eventually, the American Association of University Professors uh, censured the university all in response to the fallout from this one little letter. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story. And um, again, it, it it's, brings us back to a, a moment in history that um, in, in some ways has parallels with today, but but in some ways just feels so different. Um, so let, let's move on. Um, tell us a little bit about Revelo Oliver and, uh, and what he did that didn't get him fired. Well, Revelo Oliver um, spent basically all his adult life associated with the University of Illinois. He'd been an undergraduate and a graduate student there, uh, earned his doctorate in classics from the University of Illinois, and then immediately moved to the classics faculty um, and rose through the academic ranks there, was promoted to full professor by the mid-1950s. 
and essentially up until that time was uh, largely apolitical. He was simply known as a uh, an expert in languages and an expert in um, classics culture, um, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Um, but in the mid-1950s, he uh, became acquainted with William F. Buckley Jr., who had just founded uh, National Review, uh, the new conservative weekly. And um, through Buckley and his friends, they invited Revelo Oliver to start contributing conservative commentary and conservative uh, book reviews for National Review. And so that's where Revelo Oliver started to write about political subjects. And very quickly, partly because he was uh, very much devoted to classical culture and very suspicious of what he deemed to be any threats to um, what, uh, frankly, were the white male heroes of, um, of classics culture. Anything that smacked of uh, progressive education, anything that smacked of anything that uh, would threaten what he held dear, he became increasingly vehement and increasingly venomous in his writings in decrying. And um, also over time, fairly quickly, uh, an increasing streak of anti-Semitism and racism started coming out in his writings, where he would praise white colonialism and praise South Africa and Rhodesia and talk about um, uh, Cuba being a mongrel state, for example. He said all sorts of nasty stuff that we don't need to repeat here. It is in the book though, that I wrote. Um, and it got to the point that even William F. Buckley Jr., uh, who was a great friend of Revelo Oliver at first, he called him the single most erudite man he had ever met. Uh, Buckley realized that these kinds of attitudes could be a potential threat to the conservative movement that he, Buckley, was trying to foster. And the conservative champions like Barry Goldwater that uh, Buckley and the conservative movement were trying to push forward as national political figures. So Buckley expelled Revelo Oliver from National Review, but that did not deter Oliver at all. He kept getting more and more outspoken and more and more um, venomous and uh, frankly awful in his writings to the point that people started to, to write to the U of I complaining about him. And it all really came to a head after John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Revlo Oliver, who had become associated with the John Birch Society, which was a uh, extremely conservative far-right organization that had been founded in 1958, um, Revelo Oliver wrote a piece for the American Opinion Magazine, which was the John Birch publication, saying uh, that uh, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated because he was, in effect, a communist. He was working with Nikita Khrushchev and working with Fidel Castro. And the communists had rubbed out Kennedy because he had outlived their usefulness to him and were preparing for a communist takeover of the United States. This got published and it created 
just as big as an, of an uproar as the Leo Cook case had four years earlier. But Oliver had a few things going for him that uh, Leo Cook did not. The biggest one being that Revelo Oliver had, had tenure. Right. So it was going to be very, very difficult for the university to fire him without, um, you know, showing that uh, he had engaged in really horrible activity that showed him to be clearly incompetent in discharging his teaching and uh, research responsibilities. And the university could not demonstrate that as awful as Revelo Oliver's outrageous speech was, it was extramural speech. He was speaking as a private citizen, and that's a fundamental tenet of academic freedom. The other thing Revelo Oliver had going for him was that the university had been censured by the AUP in response to the Cook case. And uh, the university was trying to get off the AAUP center list and did not want another academic freedom embarrassment right after Leo Cook. So the university and David Henry uh, eventually decided to uh, simply um, not uh, take any action in response to Revelo Oliver. Although you say that he was speaking as a private citizen, but he blurred the lines a little bit between his his role as an academic and uh, his his role as a private citizen. Yeah, and th- these are part of the reasons that these cases remain relevant today is that the three basic principles of academic freedom are that you have freedom of teaching, freedom of research, and then freedom of extramural expression. And the implication in separating those three pillars in that way is that you can draw hard and fast distinctions among those three pillars, but that's never really been the case. So if you look at Leo Cook, for example, uh, Leo Cook wrote that letter to the Daily Illini, to the student newspaper, um, condoning um, uh, premarital sex, essentially as a private citizen. It was extramural expression. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, but Leo Cook wrote that letter um, as a biology professor. He uh, appended his academic title to the signature of his letter. Um, saying he was an assistant professor of biology because he later said, you know, I was uh, critiquing the subject from a um, expert standpoint. I was drawing upon my academic expertise as a biologist. And um, so his research and his teaching interests really could not be separated from his views on premarital sex. And the same was true of Revelo Oliver. Um, he was a classicist who, um, basically believed in the supremacy. And this was by no means true of his colleagues in the, in the humanities or at the uh, classics department at the University of Illinois, um, some of whom were very vehement, including his department head, and saying, you know, Oliver is not speaking in terms of uh, for classicists generally. He's not speaking for our department. We do not agree with what he says. But his viewpoint was, Um, white male classical culture uh, reigned supreme. That was the highest expression of humankind. And people of color, uh, people who uh, believed in free love or uh, in sexual freedom, uh, people who believed in civil rights, 
Um, these were all threats to the highest traditions that Revelo Oliver held dear. So his uh, critique of John F. Kennedy and his views on race and his views on religion really could not be easily separated from uh, his identity, identity as a classicist. So extramural expression always does in, in every case, or in a lot of cases anyway, bleed over into uh, a professor's teaching and, and a professor's research in ways that are difficult to disentangle. So, and, and we should also point out, and, and you do a good job of describing this in the book, that we are at a moment here where uh, the civil rights movement is starting to make inroads on campus. There, there are protests happening in the, the town of Champaign, and, and students are participating in those protests as well. Yeah, Leo Cook's letter appeared in March 1960, and this was right after uh, the uh, sit-ins had begun among African-American college students in the South, the uh, lunch counter sit-ins, which was, you know, one of the big moments in the civil rights movement. Um, and students uh, at the U of I are starting very slowly to show sympathy for that movement. And again, this is a process that's happening in college campuses all over the country. Uh, again, the University of Illinois is, was not a Berkeley uh, or an Ann Arbor or one of the more um, overtly liberal campuses, uh, the more overtly um, politically active campuses. But no campus was untouched by the civil rights movement. And by um, the um, whole debate over the arms race, uh, a couple of years after Leo Cook's letter, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And just as everyone was across the country and uh, across the world, um, people were terrified about what might happen. There seemed to be a very real threat that nuclear warfare would erupt. So a pacifist movement emerges at the University of Illinois. There are protests against uh, mandatory participation in ROTC, the, Re the Reserve Officers Training Corps, which was mandatory for um, freshmen and sophomore men at the university at that time. Uh, there are protests uh, against the building of fallout shelters on campus. And so all of these sorts of movements um, are emerging and for people who are very traditional or in the case of Revelo Oliver, uh, frankly, reactionary in their political views, this is absolutely terrifying and, and sparking an increasingly violent backlash even before Vietnam really comes to the fore and the anti-war movement uh, really emerges uh, in, in full force in reaction to military escalation, which didn't happen until the second half of the 1960s. So uh, one of the other things that, that sort of lurks around in the background of this book is the, the role of the student press. And, and I think it's, our listeners would be interested to know that uh, Roger Ebert uh, makes uh, a fairly prominent appearance in your book. Uh, Roger Ebert grew up in Champaign-Urbana, where the uh, main campus of the University of Illinois is located. Uh, he was an undergraduate student there. Uh, he started writing for the Daily Illini fairly early. Uh, he had been active in 
uh, journalism from his high school days, actually even before his high school days. Uh, um, you know, he was publishing his own neighborhood newspaper as a child. Um, and uh, by uh, 1963, he becomes the editor-in-chief of the, of the Daily Illini, which was a really propitious time to be the editor-in-chief of a campus newspaper. Uh, 1963, um, you know, the, the summer is the um, March on Washington, uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, followed by the bombing of the uh, church in Birmingham and the deaths of the four uh, uh, young African-American girls uh, from the bombing. Uh, there is um, the um, the the, the anti-war, the uh, uh, end of um, missiles testing uh, that is passed by Congress and signed by President Kennedy, um, partly in reaction to fears of nuclear proliferation. Um, there are um, uh, appearances on campus by Strom Thurmond, that are, uh, who is a uh, very conservative politician and um, noted for his opposition to civil rights. He was a very pro-states rights senator. Uh, he was picketed by civil rights protesters um, in, in reaction to his appearance. So Ebert is guiding the student newspaper. He writes a regular student uh, column, uh, commenting on public affairs. And when the Revelo Oliver case happens, uh, Roger Ebert immediately goes to, uh, to the student paper and he writes, look, this is a controversy that um, happens from time to time on college campuses. What Revelo Oliver wrote is frankly silly, much to it, much attention is being paid to it. Um, I, I don't understand Roger Ebert is writing why our newspapers always pay so much attention to this kinds of silly sorts of things and blow them up into these moral panics. But the fact of the matter remains that even though I, Roger Ebert do not agree whatsoever with what Revelo Oliver said, he's got a right to say it. And a whole part of freedom of speech is tolerance. And if you insist on freedom of speech for yourself, as pretty much everyone does, you have to tolerate a speech that other people say that's uh, frankly very offensive. And his comments get picked up by um, the national press, get republished everywhere. And he gets really his first national attention as a writer from his commentary on the Revelo Oliver case. So again, this is, it's just such an interesting story and, uh, and you tell it beautifully. Um, do you think that these two cases can tell us anything about this moment that we're living through today in higher education? Yes, definitely. And then, you know, one thing is history is always um, studying history always very discouraging and encouraging simultaneously. It's discouraging because it sometimes seems things never get better. We never learn from our mistakes and we're doomed to live through the same fiascos over and over again. But it's also encouraging in that we can see that we do not live in uniquely awful times and that the challenges that we face in higher education and elsewhere um, we've dealt with similar challenges in the past, and we have lived through them and learned from um, them. 
So people look back on the 1960s very nostalgically for a whole bunch of reasons uh, that aren't necessarily grounded in fact or reality. In the case of higher education, people look with some reason um, as the 1960s being a period of kind of like a golden age where funding was plentiful and academics held a lot of prestige and enrollments were booming and people wanted to go to college and people really placed a high value on, a high, on higher education and contrasted very negatively with what uh, the, the state of things are today. But the fact of the matter is we can look at Revelo Oliver and we can look at Leo Cook at the University of Illinois in the 1960s and see that higher education and especially public higher education has always dealt with um, very significant political and economic pressures and always has dealt with uh, backlash against uh, controversial things that professors say. And we can see that the University of Illinois did learn from uh, behaving in a probably too rash a manner and too knee-jerk a manner to Leo Cook and stood by Revelo Oliver, even though today Revelo Oliver is uh, much more controversial in his viewpoints and uh, much more reprehensible in his viewpoints than I think most people would view Leo Cook today. So that's, uh, I think, reason for encouragement and a reason to take heart in uh, studying these two cases that we can learn from our mistakes um, by looking to the past. Um, it's also worth looking at uh, Leo Cook and Revelo Oliver in that you know, Leo Cook wrote about sexual mores and sexual mores are still very much a manner of debate. Um, people have said that well, sure, we have much more tolerance, obviously, of premarital sex today. We have much more tolerance of non-straight, uh, non-heteronormative um, sexual identities, and this is all to the good. But we still have ritualized sexual culture where people are being feel pressured to act in certain ways. Young people are being pressured to act in certain ways. We have really fierce debates about what constitutes sexual consent on college campuses. And we can see that this is part of an ongoing debate that's been going on for decades. This debate about what is permissible and what is not permissible and uh, what uh, young people uh, should do and should not do. Um, and how important it is that we have open, honest, robust debate on those questions about what constitutes consent in all sorts of contexts, sexual or otherwise. And certainly when we look at Revelo Cook, uh, Revelo Oliver rather, who was very conspiratorial in his political thinking and who was overtly racist and anti-Semitic, well, for better or for worse, we see controversies related to that um, on college campuses constantly about what is acceptable extramural speech, what is, not, what is not acceptable, what is acceptable to teach, what is not acceptable to teach, what is truly dangerous in terms of ideas and what is not truly dangerous. And I think, again, by looking at these cases, we can see academic freedom does not, it's not just a refuge for people on the far left as some critics would have you believe. It's a very important principle that also can protect people on the far right. It protects people of all political persuasions 
And it's very important for the professoriate, but also for students and everyone else, that we do have this kind of robust, uninhibited debate on college campuses, and that we don't um, get so trigger happy when somebody says something that seems outlandish or that some people think is dangerous. Because the fact of the matter is, we can have these sorts of discussions. We need to have these sorts of discussions. And if we can't have them on college campuses, it's going to be very hard to have them elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. Just this morning before our talk, I got an email from, uh, oh, I think the Chronicle of Higher Education about the, the use of gag orders uh, preventing professors from speaking on public issues. Um, you sort of... Uh, Trying to think what's the right word, uh, even before even before they've spoken. Yeah, that's that's basically a form of prior restraint. Prior, and prior restraint. Sorry, that's what I was thinking. And prior restraint is, uh, you know, a, a very very dangerous thing to be introducing into public discourse. In a, a previous podcast I recorded, there were two faculty from the University of Texas, and both of them had to preface their discussion. Uh, by saying that they speak only for themselves and not for the University of Texas. And that's not a bad thing whatsoever. No, but, that's but, actually, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, it, it, it's interesting though that, you know, the how careful we have to tread um, in, in sort of acknowledge, in acknowledging our public roles. That is the part of the language and uh, it's not a, a rule per se, but it is uh, long been included in the statement of academic uh, freedom and the statement of principles of academic freedom and tenure that the AAUP and another organization issued back in 1940, that when professors speak as citizens, it should make it clear that they are not speaking for their institutions, that they are speaking only for themselves. And a lot of times people do have uh, trouble separating those two because, you know, people say with with some reason that no one would be paying attention to right. what a professor says if he or she were not a professor, that, that it lends uh, um, implicit weight and implicit authority to their viewpoints. But still, you know, I'm, I'm retired as it is, but I'm, I'm still speaking only for myself. I'm not certainly not speaking on behalf of the University of Illinois. But yeah, when people feel that they have to be very careful in what they say, that itself is a form of prior restraint. And it can, there is a slippery slope attached to it. Um, in, in fact, that was something with, uh, when the AAUP was investigating the Leo Cook case back in the early 1960s, they made that exact point that when professors start saying to themselves, gee, I better be careful. Gee, maybe I better not say this then something may be lost. Um, important viewpoints, important forms of debate may be being inhibited in ways that are not productive. And so we do have to be very careful about that. Yeah, it creates a chilling effect on free speech. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned that you are retired. So do I dare to ask what you're working on next? I'm actually working on um, a little bit of an earlier period of history in the University of Illinois, right before the Leo Cook case. Um, I mentioned um, early on that George Stoddard had been the university president before David Henry was. David Henry was president during the Cook and Oliver cases. 
and that Stoddard had been ousted in 1953 over controversies uh, surrounding the university at that time. And one of those controversies surrounded a purported cancer drug called cribiosin uh, that uh, was introduced uh, with the help of a prominent University of Illinois administrator in the early 1950s. Uh, he was associated with the U of I Medical Center up in Chicago. And this uh, controversy consumed the University of Illinois. It then uh, consumed the Illinois legislature, moved on to consume the Food and Drug Administration, um, uh, the National Cancer Institute, the federal government, uh, landed into the ended in, up in a criminal fraud trial, one of the longest ones in Illinois history. So it's going to be tracing the history of this cancer drug called probiosin and showing that debates over public health um, really erupt over many different facets of society, academia, government, um, government, uh, regulators, and so forth, um, and show how, again, these kinds of controversies, just as academic freedom controversies, continually erupt over time and see what maybe we can learn from what happened 50, 60 years ago and how it still is applicable to today. Well, I'll look forward to hearing, for, to seeing that when it comes out, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again. Great. Thank you, Ehrlich. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, my guest today has been the author of Dangerous Ideas on Campus, Sex, Conspiracy, and Academic Freedom in the Age of JFK from the University of Illinois Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you have been listening to the education channel of the New Books Network. <laughs>